Section one of Mrs. Piozzi's Thraliana, with numerous extracts hitherto unpublished, by Charles Hughes. Quote, Strange that a woman should write such a book as this. Put down every occurrence of her life, every emotion of her heart, and call it a Thraliana, forsooth. But then I mean to destroy it. Unquote. Hester Thrale, 10th of December, 1780. There are two authorities for Dr. Johnson's conversations, and especially for his conversations at Streatham, who have a claim to be considered by the side of Boswell. These are Miss Burney, afterwards Madame D'Arblay, and Mrs. Thrale, afterwards Mrs. Piozzi. Yet I suppose that Boswell has been read by fifty persons, for every reader of Madame D'Arblay's diary, and that Madame D'Arblay has been read by at least fifty, for every faithful student who has read Mrs. Piozzi's books, or the two volumes published in 1861 by Mr. Abraham Haywood, in which Mrs. Piozzi obtains a full hearing, and in which were first published extracts from Thraliana. There were two editions of Mr. Haywood's work published in 1861, in the first, a large slice of Thraliana is inserted en masse, and not properly incorporated with the work. It had evidently been received from Mr. Salisbury, son of Piozzi's nephew and owner of the precious manuscript, just before publication. For the second edition, a large edition had been received from Mr. Salisbury, containing most intimate and vivid passages, and all these, and the preceding instalment of Thraliana, are incorporated in the first volume. Without speaking disrespectfully of Haywood's work, which was carried out under great difficulties, it may be said that the contributions of Mr. Salisbury far outweigh in value the rest of the volumes as new and authoritative matter interesting to the Johnson-Boswell amateur. They are absolutely necessary to anyone who wishes to, quote, see Boswell's Johnson steadily and see it whole, unquote. Mr. Salisbury told Mr. Haywood that he deemed Thraliana, quote, of too private and delicate character to be submitted to strangers, unquote, and since he supplied those, quote, curious, Unquote, passages unquote, in 1861, no more of it has been published. Mr. L. B. Seeley was allowed to use Haywood's materials in his Life of Mrs. Thrale, and has recognised the importance of the Thraliana extracts. They've also caused Mrs. Thrale's case with regard to her marriage to be fairly stated by Sir Leslie Stephen in his little book on Johnson in the English Men of Letters series and in the Dictionary of National Biography. Those who have only read Boswell are quite unable to understand Mrs. Thrale's position and the inevitable unfairness of Boswell with regard to her. The unfairness was inspired not merely by literary jealousy but by a personal grudge to one who had known Johnson longer and more intimately, and loved him better. This is only a proof of the sincerity of Boswell, 
and in no respects affects the greatness of his literary genius which is the main cause of our personal interest in johnson thirty years ago i collected books relating to boswell's johnson and have long looked upon thraliana as one of the few possible sources of fresh human interest about the johnson circle it was therefore a great pleasure and surprise to me to have the opportunity of perusing thraliana from end to end these six folio volumes substantially bound and lettered thraliana each containing from two hundred and fifty to three hundred pages were commenced on the fifteenth of september seventeen seventy six by the following entry Quote, it is many years since dr samuel johnson advised me to get a little book and write in it all the anecdotes which might come to my knowledge all the observations which i might make or hear all the verses never likely to be published and in fine everything which struck me at the time mr thrale has now treated me with a repository and provided it with the pompous title thraliana i must endeavour to fill it with nonsense new and old End quote. while thraliana was at my house it was insured against fire for five thousand pounds nor could i say when i had perused it that the amount was excessive as things go to-day it is the intimate record of her life from seventeen seventy six to eighteen hundred and nine by the bright and brilliant lady who was the hostess and caretaker of johnson for eighteen years and was the friend of johnson's friends reynolds garrick burke baretti burney boswell and whose second marriage with piozzi was the result of an irresistible passion in no way discreditable to her and based on mutual affection and esteem she was in a position to record interesting things and she does record them most candidly and faithfully and used to read and re-read thraliana to the end of her life only three leaves had she cut out which relate to the time when she broke off with piozzi and sent him to italy but she has frequently annotated and supplemented the record by side notes which are sometimes of extreme interest it is all in a plain bold handwriting that can be read with ease and a great deal of it has to do with forgotten scandals about her own relatives and other comparatively unimportant people these help to make it a faithful reflection of eighteenth-century life but are often unsuitable for publication when such prodigious prices are paid for a chinese vase a renaissance bronze a houdon bust and a rock crystal biberon it seems to me that it would be among the less insane of the caprices of millionaires if one who loved boswell were to pay five thousand ten thousand or fifteen thousand pounds for the manuscript of mrs piozzi's thraliana for something absolutely unique there is no such thing as a market value but let thraliana speak for itself and begin with an entry about sir joshua reynolds and his sister Quote, 
I have fancied lately that there was something of this nature, jealousy, between Sir Joshua and Miss Reynolds. He certainly does not love her as one should expect a man to love a sister he has so much reason to be proud of. Perhaps she paints too well, or she has learned too much Latin and is a better scholar than her brother. And upon reflections I think it must be so. For if he only did not like her as an inmate, why should he not give her a genteel annuity and let her live where or how she likes? The poor lady is always miserable, always fretful, and she seems resolved, nobly enough, not to keep her post by flattery, if she cannot keep it by kindness. This is a flight so far beyond my power that I respect her for it, and do love dearly to hear her criticise Sir Joshua's painting, or indeed his conversership, which I think she always does with justice and judgment, mingled now and then with a bitterness that diverts one. End quote. It was evidently a pleasure to Mrs. Thrale to hear attacks on the genius of Reynolds, whose, quote, invulnerability, unquote, was probably as tedious to her as the virtue of Aristides to the ostracizing Greeks. Northcote says that nothing made Sir Joshua so mad as Miss Reynolds' portraits, which were an exact imitation of all his defects. There are few references to Goldsmith, for Thraliana was not begun till two years after Goldsmith's death. But Mrs. Thrale gives the following anecdote at second hand. Quote, Mrs. Montague says she was vastly struck with Goldsmith the first time they met. It was at some great table, I forget what, but Lady Abercorn was there, a lady of about seventy-six or eighty years old, and the company, remarking how young she looked, were led to mention her age and apply to the doctor. I am no great judge, says Goldsmith, for I never saw an old woman before, except I mean an apple woman or a beggar woman or some such body. Ladies always look young. I think, for they are finely dressed up. So I can't tell whether this lady looks well for her age or no. It is a new species to me. End quote. A caricature drawing of Goldsmith by Bunbury is pasted in the first volume of Thraliana. The following anecdote, recorded March 1777, must not perhaps be taken as anything but a good tale. An Oxford satire on the slender examination tests of 18th century Parsons. Quote, Dr. Parker once told a story of a young fellow at Oxford who went for ordination to the famous Martin Benson, and returned rejected, and of course looking foolish enough. How is this? cried his tutor. Why were you not ordained as we expected? I don't know, replied the other. Why, he asked me some cramp questions, which I did not half understand. What questions? said the tutor. Why, says the boy he asked me who was the great mediator between god and man and what was your reply my says the young fellow 
after a moment's consideration i named the archbishop of canterbury lockhead exclaims the tutor didn't you know that the archbishop and benson have had a quarrel if you had named any other bishop on the bench it would have been done End quote. the martin benson of this story was created bishop of gloucester in seventeen fifty two and is regarded as one of the most learned and pious of eighteenth-century bishops many of them had learning but very few were remarkable for piety readers of boswell feel very well acquainted with bennet langton and his wife the countess of rothers but even the indiscreet boswell could not write quite so freely for the public as mrs thrale in the privacy of thraliana she gives a very amusing description of the wasteful and shiftless ways of bennet langton's father and mother which he must have heard from johnson and which i omit with some reluctance and then begins on langton himself and his wife lady rothers Quote, this mr langton however was to have repaired the fortune of the family and married a rich wife for he is pious learned and elegant and well qualified to make his addresses to any lady to the grief and astonishment of all his true friends they now behold him tied to a thing without beauty birth money or talents widow to an old scotch peer who wanted a son in his old age and took a fresh lowland lass for that purpose with more probability than success she is a presbyterian too to make her more fit for langton who was a tory and high churchman up to the eyes but that as he observes is a small fault for says he i shall take her to church and she will go of course and not to find out the difference she does so and they seem to live vastly happy as can be and ask their friends to dine with them lords ladies anybody upon a piece of boiled beef and a loin of veal only without anything else all this with an insensibility truly admirable august the thirteenth seventeen seventy seven yesterday i dined at sir joshua reynolds richmond hill some agreeable people were raked together and we intended to have a charming day of it but mr garrick was sick and lady rothes was troublesome she brought the babies with her both under six years old which though the prettiest babies in the world were not wanted there at all they played and prattled and suffered nobody to be heard but themselves we ancient maids sterile wives and disappointed parents were peevish to see others happier than ourselves in a little boy who naughty as we called him three people there would have been glad to purchase with ten thousand pounds garrick thrale and old deputy patterson who married a second wife on purpose but could not obtain his wish End quote. it ought to be mentioned to justify mrs thrale's description of herself as a disappointed parent that she had lost both her sons by death and had only daughters living as these extracts from thraliana are given in order of time as they were entered by mrs thrale in her volumes they must inevitably appear scrappy 
and they jump from one subject to another but this gives the same effect as does the actual reading of thraliana which is something between a diary and a commonplace book and is a delightful jumble of family troubles gossips scandal political events amusing tales and serious reflections i do not remember having seen elsewhere a tale told by johnson about garrick when he first appeared as king richard in london a rich and noble lady fell in love with him and sent a go-between to propose marriage but the proposals dropped and it was only after a year or so that garrick met the intermediary and discovered the cause Quote, well she said the truth is the best excuse i will tell you my friend fell in love with you playing king richard but seeing you since in the character of the lying valet you looked so shabby pardon me sir that it cured her of her passion End quote. mrs thrale records a smart saying of her own when she was in paris at the time of the outbreak of the american rebellion she has used it in one of her published works quote, a french gentleman whose place was near mine at the opera asked me in a sneering manner how we should do to conquer america adding that he fancied it would be somewhat difficult perhaps so i replied now tis defended by englishmen i remember it was easy enough to take it from the french End quote. the following description of mr cumberland proves that sheridan did not overdraw his caricature in Sir fretful plagiary in the critic quote, mr cumberland's delicacy is very troublesome his peevishness very teasing and his envy very hateful he looks to me like a man that has been poisoned so sallow is his complexion and so sunk are his eyes yet his person is genteel and his manner elegant but he professes to be easily galled and says of himself that he was born without a skin effeminacy is however an odious quality in the creature and when joined with a low jealousy actually detestable he is a man one cannot love End quote. i suppress a rather scandalous note annexed to this passage by mrs piozzi at a later date as an introduction to an account of a conversation on love with dr johnson in which he expressed his usual common sense and unromantic views she remarks quote, as my peace has never been disturbed by the soft passion so it seldom comes into my head to talk of it End quote. during this conversation johnson defended all amusements as combating the tedium vitae Quote, cards dress dancing all found their advocates in johnson somebody would say such a lady never touches a card how then does she get rid of her time says johnson does she drink drams such a person never suffers gentlemen to buzz in his daughter's ears who is to buzz in her ears then the footman End quote. 
The following tale may be recommended to the members of the Anti-Vivisection Society, and it will be all the more suitable for them, as it bears the marks of exaggeration and imagination. Quote, a fellow brought his dog to a doctor for dissection. Pray, friend, inquires the doctor, is not that the dog which once saved your life? And have you the cruelty to bring him here to be dissected? Well, really, answers the clown, I do believe the poor beast loves me so, that if he knowed I should get a crown by it, he would have come voluntary. End quote. Mrs. Thrale has written in these volumes several tales unfit to tell in a mixed company, but we must remember that this was a private record, and that she had possibly heard some of these smoke-room stories from Thrale in private. And then, of course, the 18th century was not precisely mid-Victorian. She had, however, her own strong feelings of propriety. Quote, at a dinner-party at Mr. Deputy Patterson, his wife insisted on reciting some impromptu verses, which her husband had composed at the age of seventy-two, in honour of a reigning beauty. They were repeated with great gravity, and in a theatrical tone. When Daphne fled Apollo's arms, and in a laurel veiled her charms, his godship longed to bark her. So I do hate the nuzzling pride of lace and gauze that strive to hide the charms of Kitty Parker. Editor's note, Mrs. Thrale writes out four more stanzas, back to main text. Well, now to be sure, these verses are very happy, very sprightly, very clever, considering they were run off all impromptu. But they are such verses as I should have thought no lady would have repeated in mixed company. End quote. Nevertheless, Mrs. Thrale must have asked Mrs. Patterson for a copy of those charming verses, for she would hardly have been able to carry them in her memory from a single hearing. Mrs. Thrale has written in these pages a long account of her own family, much of which has been published by Haywood, but that gentleman was not entrusted by Mr. Salisbury with the following account of the diarist's own father, Mr. John Salisbury, of Bachy Craig, who seems to have been rather like one of the heroes of Fielding's novels. Quote, My father, turning out a wild young fellow with spirit to spend money and earnest desire to give it away whenever it seemed to be wanted, and soon very little to spend or give, and resolved to come to London and try his fortune, as tis called here, he fell in with a very famous woman, Miss Harriet Edwards, who, having struck out for herself a new plan of happiness, resolved to act the man and the libertine. She was a young person of large and independent fortune, who set reputation at naught, and scandal at defiance resolved to avoid marriage and yet have a son on whom to settle her estate editor's note she would be considered quite a forward feminist even now back to main text took as i have been told a fancy to my father whom she supplied with money as long as her taste to his company subsisted and when they parted 
he picked up another female friend, a Mrs. Stradwick, who, being divorced from her husband, led a libertine life till all her pelf was exhausted. When these resources failed my father, he went abroad as Cicerone to his relation, Sir Robert Cotton of Combermere, who paid his expenses and was pleased with his company. The more, perhaps, as he did not suspect the attachment his own sister Hester had to him, and the regular correspondence they had long continued to maintain. My mother became so lovely a creature, both in body and mind, that her brother Sir Robert grew proud of her, and she was always about with him and Lady Betty, who introduced her into gay life when she received many advantageous proposals of marriage. She, however, declined accepting any, having secretly set her heart upon her flashy cousin John. And when her fortune was settled and she became independent, she resolved to bestow it and herself on my father, for whose necessities it was by no means sufficient, being only seven thousand pounds, and an annuity of a hundred and twenty-five pounds per annum for the life of her mother, the Lady Cotton, who was no longer young, and having had two more children by Captain King, seemed to be quite worn out. Well, my father durst not return with Sir Robert from France, lest this attachment to his sister should be discovered. So he stayed at Lyon six months with a French marquise, who died in his arms, and left him the little he had not spent of hers before. Note the gold-headed cane which I gave Mr. Thrale was a present from that lady. With this little money he came home and married Miss Hester Maria Cotton, his brother, Sir Robert Cotton, protested he would never see them more. End quote. They lived in Carnarvonshire in poverty and dissension till the daughter became a link between them. Rakish men seldom make tender fathers, but a man must fondle something, and nature pleads her own cause powerfully when a little art is likewise used to help it forward. I therefore grew a great favourite, it seems, in spite of his long-continued efforts to dislike me. And now that they had a centre of unity in this offspring, for which they were both equally interested, they began to agree a little better, I believe, and bear with patience their irrevocable lot. And now nine years of mutual misery had been endured when Sir Robert Cotton, soured by having no children of his own, and disliking to excess the lady whom his next brother and immediate heir had chosen, began to hear of his once favourite sister and made overtures of peace. During these nine years, my mother had never bought but one new gown that cost only one guinea of a peddler that had come about the country. She made her own candles, salted her own meat, ironed her own linen and her husband's and mine and if he could but have been good-humoured protested she would have been happy End quote. as a fair account of mrs thrale's life up to the time of her marriage is given in haywood's and seeley's books it will be unnecessary to give any more extracts about her relatives or the circumstances recorded after fifteen years of her marriage to mr thrale a mariage de raison arranged for her by her mother and uncle 
it was not an unsuitable marriage but mrs thrale is modest enough to think that one of the chief of her attractions in mr thrale's eyes was her willingness to live much of her life in the house in the borough near the southwark brewery the house at streatham was for thrale rather a suburban than a country house for he was quite determined not to have a quote neighbourhood unquote there but to depend for society on friends from london his old bachelor friends murphy bowdens fitzpatrick captain conway and others were at first the amis de la maison mrs thrale says quote, i liked none of them but murphy and my mother despised them all end quote. but it was murphy who introduced johnson and so made the house famous forever in english literary history End of section one.